0: Joanna, do you ever wish you could definitively prove that you had the right opinions
1: about movies?
2: Uh, yeah, Neil, because I do have the right opinions about movies and television, right, Dave? No, because I'm more right about those things, and I demand trial by content. Oh boy, what is trial by content? Each week, we'll take on a huge question. Each of us will bring a choice, and
1: combined with listener submissions and your votes, we will come to a decision. It's trial by content every Tuesday on
2: Spotify, TheRinger.com, or wherever you're listening right now. Don't let Neil win. Don't let Dave win.
0: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Life is all about innovating, creating new ways to enjoy things. We wouldn't have movies like The Matrix or Star Wars without it. We wouldn't have the new groovy fries from Sonic either. You've never seen a fry like this. It's hot, crispy, and designed to hold more sauce in every groove, which is perfect because there's also a new groovy sauce, creamy with a kick, and made just for new groovy fries at Sonic. Get the new groovy fries and groovy sauce today. Live free. Eat Sonic. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Vikings getting their revenge. That's right, The Northman, a breathtaking new film from Robert Eggers, the director of The Witch and The Lighthouse, is here. I'll be talking with Robert later in this episode. I hope you will stick around for our conversation. But first, we must dig into the majesty, mythos, and mania of this Viking epic and talk about our favorite revenge movies. And here to do that, of course, is my very own Valkyrie. It's Chris
1: Ryan. Hello, Chris. This bear cape is itchy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Chris, are you excited to talk about The Northman today?
1: Yeah, I really am. <laughs> I think this is the most interesting movie I've seen in a really long time. I hope that enough people see it so that there can be some like really thoughtful conversations about it because obviously when you get a Robert Eggers movie, you're going to get the, you know, the five elements of hip-hop are going to get pushed really, really hard. The five elements of filmmaking, like the sound, the camera movement, the cinematography, the performances, the writing, all of that stuff is going to be in the max. But the ideas and the storytelling style of this movie are fascinating. And I'm really, really curious to see what a mass audience thinks of it.
0: I am too. So let's just paint the picture for the audience of what this movie is. It is a true Viking epic and a true revenge story. It's about a character named Amleth, who is on the verge of becoming a man when his father is brutally murdered by his uncle. His father played by Ethan Hawke, his uncle played by Clay Bang, the Swedish actor. And After that, the boy escapes from the kingdom and goes on a journey. And on his journey, he learns to become a warrior. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he raids Slavic villages. He travels across Northern Europe. Soon he meets a a shamaness. And she reminds him of a vow he made when he was just a young boy escaping the village, which is to save his mother, kill his uncle, and avenge his father. That's the whole movie. The whole movie is just this crazed man's quest to kill people and acquire vengeance for his father. It's a very simple story. It's the kind of movie we've seen actually very, very often in the past, and has been done well before. Though I will say, Viking movies have not really been done terribly well before.
1: Do you ha- do you have an interest in the world of Vikings or the history of Vikings? I think I had um, a phase in my childhood after dinosaurs, where seeing those ships at like the Natural History Museum held some interest to me. And there's also like at the Philadelphia Art Museum, there's a really great armory section where you see like all the knights and stuff like that. And I think they have some, some Viking garb. But, you know, it was, it was a fleeting moment if it, if it wasn't one at all. And I, I can't say that I'm like fully immersed in the mythology and folklore of this time period. But luckily, Robert Eggers is. Yeah. So one of his hallmarks, of course, is a tremendous
0: amount of research and historical accuracy relative to the stories that he told. For The Witch, for example, he dove deep into New England religiosity and found Mm -hmm. a way to tell an incredible story about witchcraft. And for The Lighthouse, he went to extraordinary lengths to recreate another New England nightmare inside of a lighthouse. They built up this incredible edifice. The language that he used in that film was amazing and and historically accurate. He likes to get into the gritty, nitty-gritty details of these stories this is a much bigger movie than anything that he has made before. This is reportedly somewhere between a $90 million and $100 million movie. A lot of the press about the movie already has been about some of the anxiety about it, whether whether a movie like this can be successful enough to justify its budget. I'm candidly a little less interested in that than I am the movie itself, which I I was, I would say, blown away by. And whether I loved it is something I'm still trying to figure out. But the scale and the intensity of purpose with which this movie is made is really quite something. Uh, I think every performance in the movie is extraordinary. Uh, I think Eggers is developing a Fincher-esque reputation as a person who will not quit until he gets exactly what he wants and gets exactly what's in his brain onto the screen. You can see that in the performances and in the staging of the movie. That being said, you can also feel the effort in this movie, and you can feel the movie dragging through its ideas at times too. So it's, it's it's an interesting combination of soaring, blood curdling violent epic and also this kind of slow-paced methodical exploration of the history of Norse mythology. And so it's a very odd stew. What what did you think about it?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned Fincher and there's a New Yorker profile of Eggers that I'm sure will reference multiple times written by Sam Knight that came out a couple of weeks ago in in advance of of this movie. And uh in that piece, you know, he has a conversation there's a little bit of secondary quotes from Ethan Hawke. And Hawke mentions that one of the reasons why he wanted to do this movie was because he had kind of been thinking to himself, am I ever going to be able to be on a set like Apocalypse Now? And I kept thinking of Coppola while I was watching uh, this movie because of that. And so this idea that there's a director with a singular vision who will stop at nothing to get what's in his head on the screen... And also does things that maybe for the ninety nine point nine percent of viewers just wouldn't matter, you know. Like so, Coppola. When you, there's this famous scene in one of the cutscenes from Apocalypse Now, and, and in, in Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, where Coppola is like very, very like uh, detailed in his design of a French dinner that's taking place at an old French like compound up the river in in Vietnam. And he's the one who's, he's like, they have to have the red wine is on the left. And then they have to have the napkins on the right. And that may, I was thinking of Eggers. Because there's stuff in the Northman that you will see for a split second that I bet he spent like two months refining and making sure like that was an accurate wood cutting. Now the total experience winds up, I think that stuff matters. But when you were watching it in the movie, you may not notice the accuracy or the Nods that he's making to certain like uh, legends or mytho- mythology from that from ninth century Northern Europe, <laughs> but I think it winds up ultimately paying off. The thing is, is that like, yeah, you're right. It's two different. It's it's almost telling this incredibly primal vengeance story, and then taking these detours into. I don't even know if I would call it magical realism, because one of the things that I think people are really smart about pointing out about Eggers is that magic and realism exist like on the same plane for this guy.
0: That's right. I think the same way that he treated the witch as as if it were a documentary in some respects, that there is a mythic quality to it, but he's trying to make it seem real. Um, The same is true here. Uh, There are there are spirits and there is a sense of religiosity in this movie, too. But it's mostly about Alexander Skarsgård, and we haven't said his name yet, and we should because he is the star of this movie and one of the producers and one of the reasons why it exists. It's it's in large part about him annihilating people. I yeah. mean, the the majority of this movie is him either killing or plotting to kill people. Some of the kills are unbelievable. This yeah. is a movie that does tend to redefine that was sick, dude. It has a lot of moments <laughs> where he is... Slicing people down, or battling demon knights, or essentially like channeling his true inner beast, because the Vikings themselves were kind of channeling a kind of beast-like quality. You you wear the bearskin rug, but Alexander Skarsgård becomes the bear. He becomes yeah. the wolf in this movie, and so it's it's it is also a really interesting combination of the true savagery that we understand about the Viking people, and also this sense of Higher power that I think kind of fascinates all peoples. You know, the, the idea of like being guided by spirits, particularly the um, the Clace Bang character and his family's rejection of Christianity is a part yeah. of this movie. And the idea of like an alternative religion and what we believe in and why we believe in it and what it drives us to do that's a, is a big theme in the movie. You know, it's sort of like what is fate and how do the gods dispense it to us is clearly something that Eggers is really interested in. It, it's something that. I find hard to click with in most movies because I have no faith. You know, I'm not really a person who ponders higher powers when you're watching a movie like this or a movie like gladiator, or any movie that is like this, that seems to be consumed by some of these ideas. Like, do you view it as just like a foreign object or do you find yourself getting invested in that part of the story?
1: Well, I think that if you have something as primal and universal, sadly, I guess as vengeance, as your motivating plot engine, it becomes something that you can understand no matter what the setting, no matter what the time period, and no matter what it's adorned with in terms of its iconography, whether it's um, some kind of like Norse worship or whether there's, and there's like, there's a couple of passing references to Christianity in this movie. Like you mentioned with the Clay Spang character, who's sort of resisting the incursion of Christianity. There's one moment where somebody mentions like, the Christians worship a corpse nailed to a cross. And in that one line, you kind of get the idea of how absurd Christianity must have seemed to people on this island in the middle of the North Atlantic. But the thing that's cool about this film in general is that it does subtly show how, like, for one man's vengeance story is another man's family story. Mm -hmm. And for one story one one island's occult story is another island's religious story you know like there is like this really interesting ability even though it's told entirely almost through Skarsgård's perspective and is single-mindedly following along with this single-minded mission there is a lot of like subtlety and there's a lot of like (laughs) uh you know just sharing of multiple points of view throughout the movie which sort of turns the vengeance story on its head at a couple of points.
0: Yeah, I wrote something down here in the outline, which is there's, there's nuance in this movie, but no modesty. There are little, small storytelling choices that you have to recognize in addition to those historical details that you're talking about, but everything is still big and grand in the story. Even though it's basically about one guy, it's still a really massive thing. You know, we've, we've talked about Fincher, you mentioned Coppola. The person whose films this really reminded me of is, is Werner Herzog. I feel like the the films that Herzog was making in the late 70s and early 80s, as he started to have slightly bigger budgets than what he was working with when he first started out, particularly the Klaus Kinski movies A Gear of the Wrath of The A Gear of the Wrath of God and Fitzgeraldo that really feels like what he's after. These deeply spiritual, crazed reflections of men on these hopeless missions. And they operate as these kind of like mirror images of their filmmakers, you know, that like they are relentless and unwilling to give up on what they want, even if it costs them their life. You can feel Eggers kind of pouring everything he has and everything that Yarn Blaschke, his DP, and uh, the Icelandic poet Sion, who he wrote the movie with, and especially Alexander Skarsgård, who it seems like went through hell to make this movie. And they're they're doing this living duality of what their experiences is making something and then what it looks like on screen. The movie was shot and made in the mud and in the fire. It looks really painful and gross and dirty, and and yet it is kind of beautiful at times, too. There is something majestic about it being in the dirt so that when you actually rise up out of the dirt, you feel the massive payoff. Still, I did feel myself thinking about how hard it must be to make this movie as I was watching the movie. And I wonder if that's maybe one of its flaws, is that it is like slightly overdetermined at times and that people will feel the effort. Do you, did did, did, you, did that strike you at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are certain moments that felt like there are a couple of moments that feel stitched in from another movie and you know there's a bunch of stuff about whether or not Eggers had final cut and what he had to do to sort of please all the different uh, masters that he had on this movie and there's one or two like transition scenes where the music is kind of different and they're riding horses in a triumphant way and you're kind of like what What part of the of this movie is about like these people having a wonderful journey like in Lord of the Rings but in terms of like its labored quality, I guess at the end of the day, I just say to myself, I'd rather watch something like that than something completely anonymous. So that even if this person maybe spends five extra minutes on a, a psychedelic mushroom ritual that you know ultimately just reinforces the fact that this little kid is going to become a man or that he is tied to his father through like an oath and this tree of kings, which is kind of like an idea, but maybe also physically real... I I just think that like I would rather watch something like this where it's completely and totally somebody's vision, although although messed with a little bit, than just something kind of anonymous. Like, oh, cool, you you like did it's good for what it is, and you you got some ideas in there. I mean, everything in this movie is an idea.
0: Do Do you feel as though you were uh, born of a line of tree kings? Do you, does that feel true to the Ryan <laughs> historical experience? And no. you think back on your ancestors? I'm just born
1: of a line of like pasty bookish irish
0: guys <laughs> <laughs> um what do you think of the performances in this movie what do you think of scarsgard what do you think of nicole kidman what you, what do you think of anya teller joy
1: yeah so scarsgard i think needs to kind of go into a different category cuz while i'm not trying to take anything away from the emotions he communicates it's it's something that you have to like reckon with physically dude looks like he's juicing like he has uh, a neckline in this movie that I don't know if it's makeup or like like enhanced, but there is one shot of him in a mineral bath where he looks like he's wearing a shock collar, like a, like a 1980s linebacker. <laughs> yeah, like, he looks like Brian, Sp- Brian Bosworth, yeah. Yeah, and he's nude.
0: It's funny you say that, because when I spoke to Eggers, he literally made reference to Alex's lats and traps, and I was like, makes sense. He really put in the time here.
1: Yeah, so the physical exertion and transformation... And because Eggers shoots a lot of his movies in these oneers, uh, in these sort of like one, one shot tracking shots, I don't think I ever noticed any stunt work. It just, it just looks like Skarsgård the entire time. So his performance for me was largely physical, but it existed in this place where he's almost pushing this character to this point of animalistic, primal rage, and he gets there. You know, like, I don't, it's not a relatable guy. It's not even like, it's not even like Daniel Plainview where you're like, oh, this is so, like, interesting to see him immerse himself in this character. I mean, Skarsgård makes himself into a animal almost literally. There's
0: a scene early in the film, shortly after we cut from the young boy transitioning to the elder, the older Skarsgård, where there is a some sort of Viking ritual in which across a bonfire, the transformation is literally happening. There's, there's some sort of shaman leading a, a drumbeat that signals Skarsgård and his cohort turning into animals. And you can see in his face in real time that he is becoming a bear. And then that sh- is shortly followed by, frankly, one of the more amazing scenes I've ever seen in a movie. The, this, yeah. this Slavic village raid that the Vikings sick upon them is crazy. I mean, it. Th- th- there's a famous scene from the trailer of this movie in which Skarsgård's character catches a spear that has been hurled at him in midair and turns around and throws it back at his enemy. And that was an incredibly exciting moment when the trailer for this movie first came out. But everything that happens after that is even
1: crazier No, I because mean, of what you're saying. Skarsgård, they raid this fort and Skarsgård like repels himself up this fort wall with an axe. And you're like, how is it? How are you doing this? You should. It's really with- happening. <laughs> yeah, like, this is crazy. This guy is climbing up a flat wooden wall with just an axe, um, and then leaps and and all the stuff you see in the trailer. And we don't want to give away too much stuff, but it's also one of the more brutal things that you will see on a screen. And because the music and the sound is dialed up all the way to eleven in this movie, it, you almost come out of it, e- even if you're not appalled by the violence. You come out of it almost physically disoriented and sick from it because it's so punishing to watch. So let's talk about the rest
0: of the cast then. Yeah, Um, yeah. Ethan Hawke is your guy. Um, Sure. He's having a moment here with Moon Knight. He doesn't last very long in this movie, uh, which I don't think is really a spoiler, honestly. But what did you think of his performance?
1: So I was curious whether you thought that Ethan Hawke's role in this movie is to be seen the way the child would have seen him or to be is if that's like realistically like not not in the sense that like if that really what he would be like there's a moment between Ethan Hawke and Nicole Kidman who plays his wife that is notable but like I kind of you know you kind of want to put that aside because there's stuff that happens later in the movie that reflects that but I thought it was interesting that a lot of what happens is this kid who has this vision of his father as this conquering hero, as this loving father, as this loving husband and this benevolent king. And you know, he's come back from battle. And Hawk does a good job like reflecting that. I think that ultimately I honestly, like at, at some point during this movie, and I, I have this this argument with myself a lot, but like I kind of wish this movie had been three hours and that they had spent a little bit more time in this kid's childhood and seeing a little bit more about like what life was like before. It was irrevocably changed for him. What did you what did you make of like the early scenes, the hawk-led scenes in that and it, on that island? Well, I've been trying
0: to trying to dig through it, and it's a little tricky to talk about because it does potentially lead to some spoiler conversation that I don't want to ruin parts of the movie for the for for listeners. But there is something about it that feels like it is meant to start as formality, as mm-hmm. like traditional storytelling in this mode where you have the great king returning home. And then very quickly, maybe 20 minutes later, is ultimately about subversion. And is ultimately about kind of undermining your expectations of what this great king represents, not just to his son, but to the audience. And then as the movie goes on, you may or may not believe that to be the case. I think the fact that it's neither confirmed nor denied, whether he's a great king or a weak king, is one of the more interesting aspects of, yeah. of the movie. You know, it's yeah. one of the more, it's one of the, the new elements, I think, that he's bringing to a story like this. And... I don't know. I mean, I like that. It reminded me a little bit of some of the storytelling in The Last Duel where there is a sort of multiplicity of points of view and it's questioning the kind of archetypal story that we tend to get set in these times. And it reminds us that men that seem great aren't necessarily all that great. So I thought that was fascinating. And I think Ethan Hawke is kind of the perfect man to do that. You know, he is on the one hand, this avatar of like Gen X disinterest and he has like kind of a beta vulnerability, I think, to him at times as a performer. And so even though he is wearing the chain mail and he's got all the garb and he's participating in the crazed rituals. He's still like the guy on the train from before sunset. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. he's still got yeah. this kind of, this kind of daffy sweetness to him too. So I thought he was really good. I I, I do. It would have been nice to have more of him. You know, Clay Spang uh, is really one of my favorite actors, honestly, since I started seeing him in um Ruben Ostland movies. And he has... A very, very important role in this film. And there is a version of this movie that is told from his perspective. Yes. And I think the point that you were making earlier about his character's point of view on Christianity is really interesting because this is also a movie that initially deems him pure evil. He is like the the vet, the sort of the 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 figure upon which vengeance is sought. But his character kind of has a point too. There's a little bit of Thanos going on here where it's like, should we be yeah. taking Clay Spang's character's side in the story? And that's another thing that I really like about the movie. It's much more nuanced than your typical vengeance tale, even though it has all the shape of it. And I really liked him. And I thought, without giving anything away, I thought this was the best Nicole Kidman performance in like Absolutely. 10 or 15 years. She's amazing in this movie. Takes a while for her character to kind of make her presence felt, but she I thought she was brilliant. Um, I'll let listeners decide for themselves on that. And then Anya Joy is an interesting one to discuss because in many ways Robert Eggers discovered her. Yep. She she plays um, a slave who is also a kind of aspiring witch as well in this movie who falls in love with
1: uh Skarsgard's character. And who who, it, who wouldn't? You know what I mean? You meet a I mean, guy, uh he's he's got direction in life, you know what I sure, mean? Like so many yeah. so many young men are aimless, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like bo- like I, Bobby, you know, <laughs> but but not not aimless.
0: This reminds me, it reminds me a lot of when Eileen and I met in high school, you know, and she hitched her wagon at me and she was like, you're on a mission. You know, yeah. you, you've you got a, You've got some big ideas and you want to make something of yourself and and I'm here for you and what I will do is channel the gods yeah. to lean in your favor. Um, I thought she was pretty great in this. I think she and Eggers have a real interesting thing going where he keeps casting her in very similar kinds of roles where they start out seeming like pretty nice but then ultimately they are like consumed by their vision and she's like a, Movie star now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of It's neat crazy. too
1: also that like uh, you read these, you, if you read articles about the Northmen and Skarsgård and Hawk and everybody are just like so like shattered by the experience and Anya Taylor-Joy is just like, that's my guy. Like I love showing up and having to wear like <laughs> 17th century clogs, <laughs> you know? And, and, and her whole thing is like, if you already, if you know he has this very specific vision for the film what you're there to do is to execute it, and it's not like oh we show up and maybe we'll put the camera here and maybe we'll put the camera there. She's like, no, he has something, and my job is to help him find it, you know, on screen, which is kind of an awesome, old school. Like you don't see a lot of director uh, performer relationships like that anymore. Yeah, I hope they make a lot more movies together. Um, and that is honestly
0: how I think of of you on this show. You, you just you show up and you <laughs> you're right. ready to do the work. I'm just wearing
1: my clogs, and I'm like, you just just point the camera at me.
0: Um, what else strikes you about uh uh Eggers' directing style? Is there anything about it specifically that that cause he 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 makes a lot of choices, you know, he does do a lot of this sort of symmetrical head-on close-up stuff that you see in like Wes Anderson movies or Barry Jenkins movies. They just happen to be in Viking settings. You know, he does those long wonders that you're talking about, which require this incredible amount of choreography because they're not just tracking shots through a a target, you know, they're their are action sequences, and so there's something amazing about that. Anything else about his style? Well,
1: I, I don't mean to change the subject on you, but what do you think of his writing style? Because it's very... Uh, I mean, the visuals are just stunning. You could watch this film with no dialogue if you wanted to probably understand what's happening and also be blown away. But the... Uh, basically, the language of this movie and the 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 sort of written the written character of the film is a really interesting one because it probably is the thing that made it hardest for me to, I, I guess, understand mm-hmm. is there's like these scenes where you're just, you know, people are talking about fate, but, you know, like, they're also talking about these ideas in such a language that is like, it feels not quite poetic in the way Shakespeare would would feel, but is is obviously very, I think historically rooted, I'm not doing a good job describing it, but I found it like so dense, but yet not that beautiful, if that makes sense. Maybe like the land, you know what I mean? Maybe like mysterious, but not exactly gorgeous or pretty, you know? And uh, I found like, you know, like there's a, um, a moment where uh, the, the Amleth meets a, a, a basically a mystic, a witch and it's a very, very crucial scene in the film because it's like this like, he's going to be set on his path back towards this uh, to, to avenge his father. And a lot of information and a lot of very important dramatic motivation is in that scene. And I have to admit, I didn't quite understand what happened. You know what I mean? And I know I had a little bit of that issue with the Northmen, too, uh, with the lighthouse as well, where like, the language of it was so specific that it was kind of hard for me sometimes to, to, to feel like I understood what was going on.
0: Yeah, I think it's an, it's an interesting question. There's two different co-writers on those movies. Max Eggers' brother was the co-writer on The Lighthouse, right. and, and Sion, this, this Icelandic poet and author, is the co-writer on this movie. I think Sion's probably responsible for, quote-unquote, a the lot language. of that language that you're describing. You know, Bjork, the famed Icelandic pop star, right. plays this seeress this who gives... Amleth this this mission kind of reinvigorates his purpose. That scene is hard to understand and in part because of how Bjork delivers it, in part because of the volume with which it is shown on screen and the the kind of the contrast between this brutal thumping score of this movie and some of the more whispered dialogue. I don't it doesn't really bother me in The Northman, but the the difference between The Northman and The Lighthouse is The Lighthouse, to me, is hilarious. That's like To me, I think that's one of the funniest movies of the last five years. And if you, say, watch that movie with closed caption on at home, you can see all the jokes. You can see in Willem Dafoe's performance the kind of the comic pursuit in some of that. Now, this movie, like The Northman, does have a couple of fart jokes. There is there are a couple of funny moments in The Northman, but not very many. It's not really a very funny movie. And it's not really very interested in amusing you. It's interested in thrilling you and in in captivating you. So there is something a little distancing. I agree with you about the language. But I think it is accurate to the period and to the history. And so if that's ultimately what is driving so many of the creative decisions, you kind of have to accept that. Whether audiences are going to care, I don't think they are really going to care. I think they're going to like half listen to that stuff and then just wait for Skarsgård to put a sword through a dude's chest. You know, yes. like that's that really is the value proposition. Maybe we should talk about that just a little bit. I mean, what do you think? You know, you mentioned the final cut thing. Eggers did not have final cut. This movie had to go through testing, test screening, which is something he didn't seem very happy about when we spoke. But I understand why that was the case. This is a very expensive movie on a grand scale after he made two fairly modest sized movies. It's an original story, quote unquote, even though it's the oldest story in the
1: history of time. hmm. and and it's basically hamlet yeah
0: yeah um i would i would uh, flatly plainly recommend this to anybody that likes epic movies i think it's like at a minimum there is extraordinary accomplishment in the movie and some awesome sequences but it might be a tough sell um what what do you think it's going to do uh
1: in in terms of its commercial prospects yeah i don't know man ambulance made eight million dollars what are we what are we doing here (laughs) I mean, if, if people see like five hundred am- ambulance commercials during n b a regular season games as they wind down and during the masters and stuff, and then they're like, "Pass, I don't know if they're going to be like, "Oh, is this two and a half hour Viking movie with the guy from True Blood and Clay Spang, who I've never heard of? like that's what you're going to go see i I'm really worried for its prospects. You know, I'd love to be proven wrong, and I hope that it's a kind of movie that kind of has like a second and third life as something that gets screenshotted a lot and something that gets talked about a lot. And then like something that gets watched over and over again, once it inevitably hits a streaming service, but as like a commercial blockbuster movie going up against Sonic the Hedgehog two, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) My God. (laughs) Here's the thing that I do think it has going for it. And this is part of the larger conversation that we're having today on, on, on my favorite movie podcast. People fucking love vengeance. They do. And revenge is like one of the top two or three motivating actions in storytelling. It's just like, I gotta get my revenge. There's, I gotta get the love of my life. There's, I gotta get, get my revenge. And there's, I gotta get out of this place. And if you can include all three in one, you got yourself a really hot property. But this movie digs down deep into the mud of what revenge is it's what's cathartic about it and what's ultimately empty about it and that's the thing I think I love the most about this movie aside from like the obviously like once in a generation eye that this guy has
0: I think you nailed it that's that is really the theme that vengeance is fundamental to this character's survival and also pointless Yeah, and and a, and, and a, a journey to oblivion really there's nothing else really to it it's a fascinating movie. I hope people check it out. I, I don't know what else to say. There's a fucking sword fight in a volcano. You know, like, yeah. how, can you do better? Can you do better in a movie than a sword fight in a volcano? I don't think so. It feels almost fake. It's so, so grand. It's very fun. The vengeance aspect of it is fascinating for both of us. You're not, I don't, you don't strike me as a particularly vengeful guy. You have, a, you have a reputation as a good guy. People always turn to you and they say, hey, you're, you're safe harbor. You're sure. emotional comfort. But
1: do you, is there something inside you that burns So I think that as an only child, I have a pretty, I had, and I suppose still do have like a pretty active, like fantasy life. You know what I mean? Like, I I think this was more the case before. Is this like a Dana
0: Wheeler Nicholson thing? Or what do you mean? No,
1: but like, I think this was more the case before (laughs) you could distract yourself at any, during every second of the day with like Mm. your phone or, or whatever. But like, you know, you would just sort of be like, oh, I, I don't know, like, they're, they're, I, like you see somebody driving by in a car and you're like, what if I was driving that car? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. And I think that imagining slights and then like avenging those slights is a part of that. Like I definitely think like when you, and there, one of the movies that I'm going to suggest when we do our top five vengeance movies is very much rooted in the fucked up experiences that everybody has in high school. And like, I think that that probably vengeance in in high school is like when it's most fertile because you are just feeling like completely destroyed on a daily basis. But no, not on a... I don't walk around being like, I will fucking sail across oceans of time to get my revenge against you, Sean, because you cut me off on a podcast once. <laughs> um, One of
0: the tricky parts about revenge movies is that they are often quite brutal and tend to age a little bit poorly because in an effort to portray brutality, they maybe are not looking to the future of how they'll be understood. And some of these movies, I guess, are quote-unquote problematic. I still think that there is something searing and exciting about someone just laying it all out in a movie and just saying, like, this is hard to watch. But you know what? It's necessary in a way to tell the story properly.
1: So let's just let's talk about it. Your your number five is a is a CR classic. What is it? Uh, my number five is Man on Fire, which uh, I chose. Be, this is uh, Tony Scott's foray into uh, Mexico City with Denzel Washington as a retired, somewhat disgraced CIA agent who's acting as a personal bodyguard for a rich family living in Mexico City. He develops a relationship with the daughter of this family, where a very protective paternal relationship, and then she gets kidnapped. And he uh, unleashes hell on on the the Mexico City cr- criminal underworld and corruption, the corrupt police in the in the city, and uh, is essentially like there's a, obviously this famous scene in this movie where where Christopher Walken is talking about Denzel Washington, and is just like his art is death, and he is about to paint his masterpiece. This is a movie where like you see a character who's actually like in his in his natural state is to be in a state of revenge and to be inflicting pain on other people, but can do it in a way that is actually to rescue this girl. So it's got like his, his debased kind of violent instincts are given almost a moral clarity because he's trying to like save someone and also like make people pay for what they did. Uh, this movie is sick. Uh, <laughs> Denzel puts a bomb up a guy's ass as as people may, may or may not know, but um, is kind of like Peak Tony Scott, absolutely deranged, sweaty, smoking, violent, dark, fucked up, and like the end of the movie, it, it gives you no catharsis or happiness.
0: I still never <laughs> got. I, I still never got into Man on Fire. I don't know what it is. Really? I don't, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. It's like one of the only Tony Scott movies that I can't click into. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's just because I know how important it is to you. And, and I'm like, you know what that's that's for that's for that's Chris. for Chris and Bill. <laughs> yeah, you, you those guys they deserve it. they can have it you know i'll I'll, I'll obsess over enemy of the state, you know yeah. or 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 Domino know, Beverly Hills cop two. <laughs> um okay, my number five is miss forty five this is uh, Abel Ferrara's second non pornographic feature film. um it's from nineteen eighty one and when are you going to make
1: your first non-pornographic feature film? I think that's what a lot of listeners have could asking. be a while. You know, <laughs> I'm still very
0: vital. So I still I've got my juices flowing. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: the things they're doing with cameras these days are amazing. It is pretty remarkable. <laughs> yeah,
0: no CGI needed over here, though, CR. Uh, so Miss 45, this is a, a very depraved movie. I, I thought I needed at least one representative of the, the rape revenge subgenre of films. And Miss 45 might be the best one. It's um it's a movie about a young woman, a mute woman who is working as a seamstress uh, in New York City who is raped not once but twice in one day in two very brutal sequences. This is at times a very hard movie to watch, so I'll just I'll I'll foreground that for the listener. But um she immediately seeks her revenge by dressing in a kind of a sexy nun's costume and then meting out revenge across the city and killing people. And it is a fascinating analysis of what satisfies that vengeful lust and it features an extraordinary performance by Zoe Lund in in, in you know kind of like the star making role she appeared in other Ferrara films and is a is a unique actress who you know also really struggled with a heroin addiction over many years and um, there's very few people that look like her she's incredibly striking on screen and this is a movie that um, a lot of Dirtbag cinephiles and aspiring auteurs saw and adopted style and depravity from over the years. Extremely influential movie and beautiful in its own very fucked up way. So that's Miss Forty Five. You seen this There was
1: one? a just a really long period of time uh, where rape was just the motivating incident, like the the triggering incident of like all revenge movies. And I'm not laughing at that. I'm like like kind of almost like in shock that that was just something that happened for 25 years. And there's a bunch that we could mention here. I spent on your grave uh, last house on the left where you're just like, oh, wow. So as straw dogs. This is this is just like this is what this movie's about.
0: Yeah, I mean, in some ways it makes sense as a storytelling trope because it is the most awful thing short of murder that can be done to a person and to show it on screen, really, like, it boils people. You know, I Spit on Your Grave is a really interesting example of that. I and mean, that's another movie that's incredibly hard to watch and yeah. um, would never be made today in the way that it was made back then in the 70s, but um, has a power to it. You know, it has an
1: undeniable power to it. Um, what's your number four? My number four is Gladiator. And I chose this uh, because there is a world in which the Northman is Gladiator, right? And that there there is, it's another Sword and Shields epic it's another movie where a guy gets everything taken away from him, is forced into slavery and makes his way back to uh his home to take what was once his. Uh th- it's really fascinating. I would almost want to watch these on a double bill to see how someone who maybe is the ultimate like insider artist, like really Scott, has anyone ever been like a more s- stable and sure-handed studio director who's also able to like put his his personal vision on those films like him? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, not, not somebody who's ever been as prolific as him. You know, you'll get somebody who maybe is, like, a good studio director but doesn't work as often. But Ridley Scott, like, can make two films a year as varied as Last Duel and House of Gucci. Uh, but, like, with Gladiator, I think, obviously, this was a multi-Oscar winner and made Russell Crowe into a blockbuster superstar. This is, like, basically the best version of this movie where it's, like... It's relatable. The character's motivations are clear and uncomplicated. The villain is like absolutely unquestionably the villain, you know, and it winds up actually feeling both poignant but cathartic at the end. And there's a lot of Roman politics stuff in here that I don't think anybody really cares about. But it this is like a, an amazingly well done revenge movie.
0: Yeah, I thought of Commodus a little bit when we were talking about the Clay Spang character in the yeah. Northman and the fact that it's sort of sort of the inversion you know commodus we have no empathy for him we don't really see i mean he's a fail son you know what i mean he's he's not an an interesting character and so the there maybe the movie has a little it it is maybe less multi-dimensional than the northman is in some ways but and even eggers when he and i spoke said i gotta give it up to gladiator gladiator is a good movie um yeah and and (laughs) he's a tough critic so uh That's a good one. My number four is probably a a good double feature with Miss 45. It's another B movie uh, from the 1970s. It's called Walking Tall. People may remember that title as uh, a movie starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, which was remade in 2004. This is the original. I encourage people to check out the original. You can watch it on Pluto TV. It's a little bit slower than the remake. It's a little bit more of its time, but there is no, nothing has more satisfying than watching Joe Don Baker bash dudes heads in with a club. And that's what he does in this movie. He plays a retired professional wrestler who moves, to, moves back to his hometown to spend time with his parents and his family, his wife, and his children. And when he returns home, he discovers that this town that he grew up in has become very corrupt and is full of thugs. And he's attacked in a bar one night and he gets arrested for it. He goes to trial and he makes his case and he shows the jury the scars that he has from the attack that has been wrought upon him and he's, he's, he's let go. He's, he's, he's deemed not guilty. And after that, he runs for sheriff and he gets elected sheriff and then he just unveils a lot of fucking whoop-ass on this town <laughs> and all the bad guys in this town. <laughs> S- starting with the people who terrorized him and beat him up but then extending to every single corrupt person in this town. Yeah. This movie is a lot of fun. I don't think people really understand. We we used to make things in this country, like <laughs> like Joe Don Baker bashing guys heads in and uh if you haven't seen these check it out, it's a good one.
1: Uh Joe this is this is a really good recommendation and is sort of part and parcel with a uh a subgenre like these 70s B movie like Rolling Thunder type revenge movies where it seems like they made like two of these a week. And uh, Quentin Tarantino watched all of them.
0: Yeah, and he definitely told me about all of them, which is why I'm recommending them these days. But um, Walking Tall is an interesting one because it, it it was a huge hit. And it was a movie that started out very small and, and played very well in the South, obviously for obvious reasons. And there was a lot of discussion. It's interesting to read the kind of East Coast intellectual critics, the sort of the Pauline Kales and the Andrew Sarises and the Vincent Canby's trying to tangle with this grimy, pulpy exploitation movie set in yeah. the South, a world they know nothing about. And all of the reviews are all sort of like, I don't know what it's doing, but it's doing something to the people in this country. <laughs> 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 so I love I love relics of time like that too, where you, have, you don't have a lot of people living in the heart of Tennessee writing about this movie. That would be very different if it were today. Today you'd have a New Yorker essay written by someone living in Knoxville saying like the true story of the, Buford in sure. my life. Um,
1: anyway, that's Walking Tall. What's uh, what's your number three? Number three is Carrie. Uh, Brian De Palma's adaptation of the Stephen King novel starring Sissy Spacek. Uh, and this is a little bit of an inversion of the typical revenge story because usually what happens in the revenge story is something bad happens in the first scene. And then for the rest of the movie, our hero is getting their revenge. And Carrie, you're basically forced to go through this young woman being tortured by her friends and her mother for 80% of the movie, and then she becomes telekinetic and fucks everyone up. And I think that the reason I wanted to throw this on here, aside from it's just iconic status, is this very, very um, potent setting of high school and the torment that people can experience when they're young and kind of first matriculating into, like, a larger social life and experiencing, like, their sexual development and everything. And, like, just, like, Carrie obviously has, like, this fucked up home life, but and she doesn't have a lot of friends or any friends, and she's basically got one person at this high school who's looking out for her. And then the worst possible nightmare happens to her, and it triggers this hyper-violent, supernatural response from her that I think is a really great story, but is also a great metaphor for like the, the untamed rage that can exist inside of kids when they're when they're taunted like that. Um, so Carrie, yeah, I mean, fucking dropping blood on Carrie and then Carrie just shuts the doors. You've got Tony Scott, you've got Ridley
0: Scott, and you've got Brian De Palma so far. You're doing pretty well. When you were in high school, were you more of a sissy spacek, or more of an Amy Irving or more of a Nancy Allen? Like, what was your archetype?
1: I was pretty Ferris bueller in high school. What? What does that mean? You were the coolest guy ever? No, I just, I like, I didn't, I I worked really hard at not working, if you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I just, I I like to hang out. You know what I mean? A little bit of basketball, a
0: little bit of school paper. It's been said before, both by us and by others in the world, that um, you do have a Ferris energy and I have a Cameron energy. (laughs) And and, and, uh, that's why it works so well. You know, that's why I love hanging with you. Yeah. Uh, Okay. My number three. The Outlaw Josie Wales. You had to movie. pick one Clint. Had yeah. to be a Clint Eastwood movie. Revenge is the operating premise of probably 50% of Clint's movies, especially his action movies in the 70s and 80s. I didn't really want to do a Dirty Harry movie because I don't really feel like revenge is something that police officers are motivated by at the start. Maybe as the Dirty Harry movies go on, that's a part of the telling this, of this story. But The Outlaw Josie Wales is a movie about a guy whose family is killed and then who loses his mind and needs to seek vengeance. He starts out by teaming up with a band of Confederate soldiers and, you know, raises the land. And then after that, finds betrayal in the Union Army. And then this basically strikes out on his own, killing people left and right. Um, You know, this movie was a huge hit. This is the movie, I think, more than any Clint Eastwood-directed film that paved the road for where he was going to go as a director. Incredible action sequences and shootout sequences that's beautifully photographed. Um... And it is similarly primal, I think, to The Northmen. It has a lot in common with that movie about a guy who is kind of monomaniacally focused on this mission of destruction. Yeah, I'd say um, this
1: and Pale Rider both, yeah.
0: Yeah, and they're kind of in conversation with each other. You know, Pale Rider is almost like a spiritual sequel about a spirit of a kind. And um, it's just a really, really great movie for its time. Features a great performance by Chief Dan Dan George. I love him in this movie. He and Clint have amazing chemistry together. Really unusual movie. I think if you read the description like I did and you were just like a Confederate soldier goes off killing Union Army members, you'd be like, whoa, that seems like really <laughs> problematic. Um, it's not really like that. It's not a movie about politics necessarily. It's much more a, a, an emotional journey and a really cool movie. So I Josie Wales. Uh, okay. Number two for you.
1: So I cheated and picked two, but they are very much uh, cousin films. I picked 1967's Point Blank, directed by John Borman and starring Lee Marvin. And then I picked 1999's The Limey, directed by Steven Soderbergh, starring Terrence Stamp. And both of these films are incredibly stylish. They're both set in Los Angeles. They're both about um, older gentlemen kicking ass across L.A. But I thought they both did a really good job of... Cinematically representing what happens to a mind that's consumed with vengeance. So mm. they are both highly, highly stylish, um, cl- like, do a lot of things with time and chronology and linear storytelling in terms of jumping ahead of where the story is while the story is still being told, or, you know, doing a montage of things that haven't happened yet. And then all of a sudden we're ahead of them, or we go into the past. Uh, The Limey is about a man avenging the death of his daughter. Point Blank is about a man uh, who is avenging himself who has been betrayed by his partner and his wife. Uh, They are both in their own ways kind of sick. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of they're very good at depicting like the sickness that revenge must visit on the brain if you're consumed by something like this, but are also just amazing LA movies. And just if you're interested in a creative way to tell a very minimal story, you should check out these two movies.
0: Love that one. I, I thought seriously about putting the Limey on the list. I think the Limey is being released as part of a Criterion collection later this year,
1: or so I've heard. I is that the is. the Soderbergh bought all his masters back thing? I,
0: I think so. I think, it's, I think it's a part of that. This the Limey
1: like, also features maybe my favorite line from a revenge movie, where it's just Terrence Stamp after killing a bunch of guys comes out into the harsh LA sunlight with blood on his face and just screams tell them I'm fucking coming
0: (laughs) really good stuff Uh, okay let's begin the Quentin Tarantino portion of our conversation here Uh, he's already come up once he's obviously the um, the master of the revenge movie somebody who's watched all of these movies that we've been discussing and iterated on them and reimagined them and rebuilt them There are a lot of good movies of his to choose from that could fit this category. You chose one different from me. I chose *Inglorious Bastards. I think I I ultimately went with this one because I think Shoshana is probably his most underrated character um, and probably the most fascinating representation of the pursuit of vengeance, not because of just the power of seeking revenge on all of Nazi Germany by annihilating its leadership, but by doing so as a projectionist in a movie theater. Which feels like the ultimate meta commentary for Quentin to to make on his series of revenge stories. Um, I I just I I love Inglorious Bastards. In addition to it just being like a really fun military romp, like Dirty Dozen style, Brad Pitt led movie. It just features this incredible duel between Melanie Laurent and Christoph Waltz at the center of it, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Me, you, and Mallory Rubin talked about it on the Rewatchables. One of the most fun episodes we've ever done. I think it's mm-hmm. a movie that um over time increasingly becomes the one that i think is like him at his apex his his highest powers as a filmmaker and uh so i had to give it a shout in glorious bastards which which
1: qt did you choose i did kill bill 2 so you just talked about kill bill 1 for action movies uh, a couple weeks ago i've rewatched this film a bunch recently it's been on cable a lot and i think the reason why i'm so into this and why i wanted to put it at number 1 is the amount of uh time he spends giving voice to the people who are being hunted, who are who are the 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 reason why the the bride is looking for her vengeance is Bud and L and Bill, right? And they all get to kind of talk about what they're expecting, whether they deserve it, why they did what they did. And I think that's fascinating. You know, if you had said if I had said to you, uh, maybe I guess after Jackie Brown you know, Quentin Tarantino is basically going to get make revenge movies for the rest of his career in one way or another. Like in some place, whether it's almost like acts acts of historical vengeance, which is something we talked about a lot on the Inglorious Bastards rewatchables. But I think you could say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a act of revenge for you know for Sharon Tate. You know, like all these things that that he seems to be consumed by as a filmmaker. Would you be surprised that that was like? his central idea and central motivating storytelling device?
0: No, and I, you know, not to psychologize him, but I think that you can almost feel him like seeking revenge on everyone who didn't believe in him in a way, you know? like The audacity of his filmmaking and his fearlessness, I think, is in part inspired by the fact that he's like, No one let me do what I want to do, and I have a big, bold vision. And so, like, you can feel him channeling that in his characters. I do
1: think it is—it's the driving motivation for almost all of his best characters. Right, but surprised—I'm surprised by it because, like, you get to Jackie Brown, and you know, I guess, like, he makes Reservoir, uh, Reservoir Dogs. That's like very much of its time. It's like a crew movie. It's very cool. It's a heist movie, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. I think in some ways are this like an explicit Elmore Leonard adaptation, but also Elmore Leonard esque crime stories happening in and around Los Angeles, although very much Quentin's like experience and Quentin's language. And then after that, like from death proof Django, um, inglorious bastards to kill bill films. And once upon a time in Hollywood, I think that like the idea of vengeance or the idea of correcting history is is pretty much what he's consumed by, with the exception of, I guess, of Hateful Eight.
0: I would argue that even in the characters of Butch from Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown herself, those are revenge stories. Yeah. Those are stories right. about taking your power back, you know, about a black woman flight attendant who's been underestimated and undermined her entire life and her trying to get something for herself. And same thing with Butch, you know, it's like dumb boxer. You wouldn't have the the wherewithal to, you know, undermine this crime lord and get what's yours and he does it and I I think it's just such a the reason that he, I think he has proclaimed the greatness of movies like Rolling Thunder and Miss, uh, Miss 45 over the years is because they influenced him a lot you know yeah. and he puts it into all of his movies yeah. um, Kill Bill 2 is a great movie it's probably the le- like Kill Bill 1 is so explosive and entertaining that I think Kill Bill 2 gets a little bit pushed aside at times because it's a little bit slower a lot of it is much more focused on the the kind of Carradine Thurman showdown at the end Mm -hmm. of it, that kind of that long conversation that they have together. So it's a different kind of Daryl
1: Hannah Michael Madsen scene where he's just like that woman deserves her revenge and we we deserve to die. Like that's amazing. So amazing in the trailer. Yeah.
0: My number one is once upon a time in the West, Uh, my favorite Sergio Leone movie, speaking of revenge, somebody who knows a thing or two about it. Um probably the the best old movie uh, in theater experience I had as a kid my mom took me to see this movie I've talked about it a few times on the pod I think when Ennio Morricone died I talked about it a little bit Um, the character of Harmonica played by Charles Bronson is the one Mm -hmm. seeking revenge it's a revenge that we don't necessarily fully understand until we get to the end of the movie but again extremely influential on a lot of the movies that we're talking about here also a movie that does goes to great pains to undermine traditional heroism figures Henry Fonda beloved Man of Integrity, Harry Fonda plays one of the worst bastards in the history of movies. Yeah, in this flick, and um, it's a Leone movie, so it's grand, it's beautiful. The music is extraordinary. Uh, it features great gunfights. Fe- the bad guys are real bad, and the and the heroes are real ambivalent about being heroes. And there's a there's a damsel in distress, and she's played by Claudia Cardinale, and she's beautiful. Um,
1: just one of the greatest movies I've ever made. Uh, I love this movie. So, Once Upon a Time in the West. I, you know. When I was watching, when you I saw you put this on your list, I watched a bit of this last night just to kind of be like, I want to re- rewatch the opening scene. And maybe we underestimate what like audiences are capable of. I mean, people watch these Sergio Leone movies and they were like these like incredibly operatic, demanding, punishing in some ways, films. And it's like, maybe audiences are more open to something like The Northman than we're giving them credit for from your
0: lips to the Norse god's ears, Chris. Odin, uh,
1: please, get these folks to the theater. <laughs> CR, where, where can we hear you, man? Where Where are you making your wares these days? I'm on the Watch podcast twice a week. Okay. Greenwald should be back by now. Uh, by, by the time people hear this, uh, Andy and Andy will be back on the feed. He was on vacation. And then I'm on The Answer on Fridays on the Ringer NBA show feed talking about NBA playoffs.
0: Okay, Chris. Thanks so much. Now let's go to my conversation with Robert Eggers. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean,
1: top three movie snacks of all time, go.
0: Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn?
1: Obviously. Hmm.
0: Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now is also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan because you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash bigpick. That's mintmobile.com slash bigpick. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. So happy to have Robert Eggers back on the show, one of my favorite filmmakers with an incredible new movie, The Northmen. How are you, Robert? I'm great.
2: You know, I'm pretty great.
0: So let's start with uh, The Lighthouse, which is really one of my favorite things of the last 10 years. And uh, we talked a little bit after you made that film, and I think you had basically already started on this or had an idea that you were going to this. Was this purposefully an elevation or an expansion from, out from a two-hander, or was there not as much kind of... Forethought going into the idea of making this big epic story.
2: The thing is, I you know I'm always working on multiple things, and you don't you never know what is the thing that's going to happen. I mean, the lighthouse was kind of a uh, uh, you know it was like an escape car <laughs> uh that I had ready because I, I because I thought some bigger things were going to kind of fall apart, and it just so happened that Shion and I had a script that of, of the Northmen that we were happy with, um, enough, you know, not a shooting script, but like, but a script that's definitely said like, this could be a good movie. Um, that and it was ready right before I went to Cannes with, uh, with the lighthouse. So, um, so, you know, I took my cue from, you know, one of my idols, uh, Bergman who, when smiles of a summer night was doing really well at Cannes, he said, this is time for me to pull out the seventh seal and get a financed. And that's sort of, you know, what, what we did with, with, with the Northmen. And thankfully, thanks to the Vikings TV show on the history channel, which then spawned like a lot of other TV shows and video games, uh, you, you know, and, and the Marvel stuff, there was like a, a hunger for Viking content. <laughs> uh, so, Golly gee, what a surprise. Like I'm making little tiny art house movies and now I'm making a big Viking epic. Wow.
0: That yeah. was unexpected. Love the idea of you leveraging Marvel IP to make The Northman. There's something very special about that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you've written your last two films with with writing partners and yeah. that's different from what you had been doing pr- previous to that. What, How is it different and, and what do you like about it?
2: Well, there is a little bit of like a crass necessity, which is because I need to have like a lot of things going. Like I need somebody to like break the script or I can, I'm never going to like have enough s- stuff on the stove ready to go for, you know, what, who, for whoever orders what off my menu. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, look, Sean is an incredible writer. Um, he's a literary giant. Like in, in my mind, it's like collaborating with Bulgakov and, and I'm honored that Shion would want to work with me and look, we're, we're working on something else that has nothing to do with Iceland or Vikings, but in making a Viking movie, I needed to have, in my opinion, an Icelandic co-writer because, you know, even the most Viking hating Icelander knows it, exactly what viking saga characters they're literally directly related to and you know many icelanders today still believe in land spirits and fairies and so i needed someone who grew up with that uh, on, on on a cultural understanding and and be and and shown even as an icelander is like particularly interested in, in 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 folklore so so he's a you know a very special and specific partner for. For this,
0: One thing that you are often asked about and well-known for now is accuracy, attention to detail, having a sense of historical context for a lot of the stories that you tell. But you don't often, I feel like, get asked about invention and creation and coming up with new ideas. So the, right. no- the Northman does have some kind of conventional structures to it when you think of a Viking story. But were you trying to subvert or redefine how we think of some of that stuff?
2: Yeah, but not by inventing anything. <laughs> like every all all of the subversions come through uh, research. So I mean, the beginning of the movie, in in many ways, like is deliberately a, a, a version of the beginning of, uh, you know, um, the Vikings, uh, Fleischer, nineteen fifty eight, Kirk Douglas, like coming home from a raid. Yay! The king's back. Time for a big feast, but it is not the like sloppy, raucous um, feast of 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 the Vikings. Like the you know, I mean. By the way, if if you know, if we stayed in that great hall like over a few hours, it would have turned into that, <laughs> you know, and people would have been puking all over the place and everything else. But it, but we wanted to show how like ritualized and sophisticated uh Viking culture was in a way that we haven't seen before. And you know, and it's and even as like, you know, King Ethan Hawke is riding through the streets, people aren't like throwing flowers the king's a-! like everyone's like nodding like in respect and maybe a little fear. You know, it's it's uh, it's a it's it's a much and it's a much more restrained, like Nordic attitude.
0: And that indicates Part of what is to come in the storytelling too, which is kind of what's smart about that, you know, you're, it's a little bit of an Easter egg, I guess, for where your story's going. Um, I'm interested, though, like the, the physical and uh, structural challenge of the movie seemed really big. I, you know, it's it's a it is truly an epic, but it seems like all of your movies there is like a physical challenge aspect to it. Like, do you pursue projects that you think are going to be hard to choreograph and unlock? Is that part of the appeal of
2: some of these stories? I mean, I get, I don't do it like that, but clearly, I'm drawn to things like that, you know. And in, and you know, in, you know, in something that I wrote that was maybe less demanding compared to, say, The Northman. I decided it's like the first two acts are raining in every single scene, and the last act is snowing in every single scene. So, <laughs> and that, I, but that was just like I wasn't. I just was like, ah, oh, that that would be that would be nice. Uh it seems to suit the mood. Um But yeah, I mean, obviously that's gonna make my life hard if that movie gets made.
0: <laughs> Do people try to talk you out of this stuff? Do they say, like, why are you doing this to yourself? You could you could ha- you could just make a make a movie with uh, with two people in a room talking? You're so you're a great writer, you have a great visual. Well I sense. did, but you didn't though. It was a lighthouse, <laughs> it wasn't a room.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh Jaron, my DP, and I like have a long-standing joke about our Edwardian picnic movie. Uh, (laughs) So when we're when we're out, like getting you know uh, mutilated by nature, uh, and the icicles are hanging off our beards, you know, we'll say, "Yep, one day we'll make that beautiful Edwardian picnic movie. We'll all be it'll be." springtime with flowers and everyone's playing croquet and badminton with phonographs and boater hats. Won't it be lovely? But I, you know, I have a feeling like if that ever happened, that would be act one and it would end up like with a lot of Edwardian death and gloom, you know, with, 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 with any hope. Yeah. With any hope.
0: Sounds more like picnic at hanging rock. If you're, if you're doing it for sure. Um, so You know, language and cadence and the curiosities of how people speak, I feel like has been a big part of the first two films. This one's a little different. There's not as much dialogue in this movie. This is such a visual feast and, you know, working with a a co-writer as a poet. How did you think about what was there a particular like a purposeful reduction in in words in this movie?
2: Yeah, I mean, we you know, it's an action movie. I mean, like it's like, yeah man and also um but but you know if i had been able to do whatever i wanted i would have had the whole movie in old norse uh aside well i mean old norse and and, and old slavic um but uh because i'm not mel gibson and i can't self finance my own historical uh epics like that was not to be so we do use old norse in kind of ritual contexts and then we do you know i mean o- old slavic is used where old slavic is used. I don't know how Anya Taylor Joy's character Olga learns how to speak like her captor's tongue so well so quickly, but hey, um, yeah, I think so. We were trying to have something that felt like a good translation of of an of a of an Icelandic saga, and um, and so I asked Shion when he would do his first passes of dialogue to like bluntly translate them from Icelandic, so it would have kind of an interesting feel that I would work on uh, finessing and sometimes Shion had to tell me to like calm down and stop being so uh, Shakespearean uh, because I would want to add too many, too many words. Um, and cause Viking poetry is beautiful, but it is also like, you know, Nordic. Uh,
0: I really love revenge movies. Do you, do you like revenge movies? Was this a, an, an attempt to explore
2: that world? Yeah, it's really weird because I don't, I don't, Like vengeance isn't a feeling that I have a lot, you know. I'm not saying I'm like a like a saint or anything. Like I'm not, but that for but that is not something that I feel a lot in 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 life. But yeah, like revenge movies work. Um, Revenge movies do work. I remember I watching like a year after I went to Iceland and got the first inklings of maybe that there could be a Viking movie. I saw, you know, Blue Ruin and thought, yeah, yeah, revenge movies work.
0: So I guess when you're thinking about uh, the history of Viking storytelling, like on screen, it's actually not that deep and or good. You know, you did mention the Fleischer movie, which is probably the best known. There have been a handful over the years, but there's not a lot to even compare yourself to. Did you find yourself thinking about
2: what had been on screen before in addition to that Fleischer movie?
0: I did, but I didn't,
2: like, do a deep dive into Viking movies because they just, like, seem to not be very good. Um, Why do you think that is? You know, I really, really, really don't know. I mean, uh, like, I I wonder if, like, I mean, one of the reasons that I was never interested in Vikings is because of the, like, you know, Nazi right-wing misappropriation of Viking culture maybe that has something to do with the sparsity of Vikings. I don't, Mm. I don't think so,
0: but maybe did that give you any pause even doing this story being like, I don't want this to be misappropriated
2: in some way. Sure. Uh, You know, but I think we were just, we just were really careful, you know? Um, But, but, but then again, like, like I can't entirely help how the film is viewed because if you're, Someone who's searching with a hammer, then everything's a nail. So, I, and I, you know, but uh, but we were definitely really carefully considering all of our choices, and and we also like continue to have our, our Viking experts who consulted on the film, like consulting on on the marketing, and you know,
0: what was the single hardest thing to do in the production?
2: Um, for for I mean, for me, it was really post production. <laughs> post-production was the hardest bit how so uh, but well it just it was the first film that i didn't have final cut so um and so i so there was so it was a lot more um strenuous and and i had to do test screenings which i had never had to do before um i you know my the, the witch in the lighthouse were tested um after they were made just to like, kind of understand how to market it. And I knew that they both tested poorly, but I didn't have to like do anything about that. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, 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 so that was, um, that was where it was the most difficult for, for, for me, but look, I mean, the whole thing was hard. I mean, you know, I had to do something with Vanity Fair. said, so what's the hardest day on set? It's like, well, like if I'm not doing a raid of a village with like like hundreds of extras and stuntmen and horses and cows, pigs, chickens, kids, and mud, axes, spears, uh, you know, I'm um, there is it's a it's a stor- it's a storm at sea at night on a merchant ship, like you know, or it's uh, a naked sword fight on a volcano, you know, uh, you know, or like an incredibly incredibly tense like edipal. Uh, like dramatic scene, uh, y- you know, with limited coverage. I mean, there was no. Everything was hard. The the, the, the there's like a, a song that some enslaved people sing in the forest. That was kind of a pleasant evening. <laughs> so one one night, one night, yeah,
0: was, one night was nice and easy. Yeah, um, yeah. We talked about this a, a couple of times already but it's even more at the forefront of this conversation because there's all this anxiety about the budget of the movie. Will a movie like this succeed? All that stuff. But my my point of view on this is kind of the inverse, which is despite some of the testing you had in your first two movies, those movies were both successes. Maybe not at the massive scale of something like The Northman, but is there any part of you that is confused or surprised by how successful your feature film career has been going given
2: your fascinations and the way that you want to tell stories? Mm Of course, it doesn't make any sense to me, but like, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm glad.
0: (laughs) glad. (laughs) Why is it happening? Do you think, have you considered like what it is that is connecting?
2: Uh, I mean, I've said all kinds of crap about like, you know, (laughs) archetypes, reconstellating themselves (laughs) and all this stuff. And then, you know, but like, I don't, I don't, you know, the Norns of Fate weave a mysterious thread. You know, I, I don't know what to tell you, but yeah, I mean, like, why in the hell was a boring, like, pilgrim horror movie successful? I have no clue, but I'm, I'm very grateful <laughs> that it was.
0: What was your, uh, what was your takeaway from the testing experience this
2: time? Don't want to do it ever again. Just no, no, I'd do it again. Here's, I'll tell you what. Like it's annoying to hear people say like who are, like dumb shit, but <laughs> but also like there you do do there are things that I absolutely learned and took away from the feedback. So like I, I it's I, I that's fine. What I do not like about testing, and I'm sure like virtually I don't you know virtually every filmmaker would back me up here here is that like it's not scientific. There are li- no statistician on the planet would tell you that there is enough data that these numbers are actually, that these numbers actually can mean anything. Mm-hmm. So like as a tool to just kind of like wrap your head around some ideas and like, think about some stuff and think about like what's working, what's not working. Like, absolutely. Sure. But the, the weight that like these, the numbers like have to, to the studios that's just absurd really it's absurd because 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 it's absolutely not scientific mm-hmm. you know and they and they and they treat it like it, like it is so that's that's what i don't like about test screenings but but you can absolutely learn things about how to improve your film
0: right yeah there is something inherently commercial about an action epic right and you know it's a, it's a popular genre of,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: a story that people do like to see do
2: you feel like you have popular taste Probably not. I mean, actually, absolutely not. One hundred percent not. <laughs> I don't
0: even mean. Do you watch MCU movies? I mean, like it, the the comps, like the Braveheart comp or the Gladiator comp, like those kinds of movies. Did you find yourself a fan of those movies growing up?
2: Growing up, but I'm not a child anymore. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, that, look, Gladiator is a good movie. It's a good movie. Like I this like I I didn't like the score when it came out, and it's even more dated now but like but that's you know it you know it it's a good it's a good movie you know but um but it, it like but that's you know i'd much rather you know watch some weird soviet art film right i
0: wanted to ask you about the score actually so mark corvin did the score for the last two films and robin carolyn and sebastian gainsborough did this one what were you looking to do? What were you looking to accomplish that they're so distinct in the first two films? Did you want to do something different here?
2: Yeah. But uh, I mean, this, this, this has a ton of score. Um, this has, I think like it, the, the movie is like two hours and 15 minutes. And I think Robin and Seb composed two hours of music or something like wow. that. Uh, I mean, it's the music is really propelling the story the entire time in in a very like insanely aggressive way. Uh, and it's a, it's a, and it's a cool score. It's a unique score. I mean, it has this bed of uh, symphonic strings and, 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 uh, and, and choir, but then, you know, all of the lead instruments are Viking age instruments and the, like the sort of <clears throat> lead vocals are, are using hypothetical uh, Viking uh, singing styles. Um, it's um, it's cool, you know, um, but it was, it was, and it was, something that we really labored over and, and Robin has told me he never wants to hear another drum again for the rest of his life.
0: (laughs) I just watched the latest trailer and I couldn't help hear that. It's almost all drum. You know, that there is that, that propulsiveness feels like the heart of the movie.
2: I really like the new trailer.
0: I will. I must admit. It's very good. Uh, Here's an easy one. How'd you get Bjork to
2: come back to movies? Um, it was it was I think she felt that it would was a familial environment because Robin, who we were just talking about, has collaborated with Bjork and friends with her. And he in like introduced me and my wife to Bjork, and Bjork introduced me to Shion, and she's known Shion since they were teenagers. So it was all that kind of stuff. So there you go. What was it like working with her? Great. You know, and easy. I think, uh, you you know, she is the pop shamaness of planet Earth. And so, you know, she just simply needs to put on the costume and she can become uh, a Cirrus. It's very simple (laughs) if you're (laughs) Bjork. You know, speaking
0: of pop shamanesses, uh, Anya has become a huge movie star since you first worked with her. It's cool to see you guys reuniting. How has she, how is she different as a performer working on this since you? I mean, I don't know if you discovered her, but I worked with her very early in her career.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, we've both gotten better since The Witch. And um, so that was fun. But I think, you know, know, for for one thing, Annie and I are friends. So I've been talking to her and hanging out with her here and there, like over the past seven years that we hadn't collaborated. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, this movie star transformed has come onto set for like, who is this person, you know? Mm. And, and, also by the way, like Queens gambit was exploding while we were shooting the movie. Mm. <laughs> so that was crazy for her because she was like, you know, going from like the muddy mountainside to then like zoom press in her, uh, in her, in her, you know, hotel. It was, it was kind of crazy for her. Um, but, you know, look, she's such an accomplished actress she got such a facility for language, whether it's early modern English in The Witch or ancient Ukrainian in uh, *In The Northmen. Uh, and, you know, her ability to, to be ethereal and grounded, uh, you know, is why I like to cast her in these witchy roles. Um, and, you know, and, and she's got an incredible work ethic, uh, which is boring, but true. Um, and, uh, you know, and she just kind of explodes off the screen.
0: How how about Alexander? Um obviously there's it's pretty clear why he wanted to do this and had been wanting to tell a story like this but it's been interesting reading him talk about the the kind of like the effort and the the power of working on a movie like this that's something this intense. What was your experience with him like?
2: Well, I mean Alex unlike me was has been into Vikings like since forever for him and and so this is something that he like he wasn't going to accept anything else but like utter perfection in his performance and he really delivers. And as much as he talks about me driving him to the edge or kind of stuff, uh, which may or may not be true. I can think of more than one time when he asked for another take himself, Mm. you know, but I'm really proud of his performance. I mean, the last act, particularly, he just feels like a saga anti-hero like i i mean i i'm um, i'm he's that he's completely trans transformed and you know i mean obviously like the bodily transformation the fact that he's the beast this beast and he's so huge and his traps and his lats are just like mind-blowing uh but 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 also think about the vulnerability that it takes to channel that kind of rage on 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 screen it's pretty damn impressive.
0: Wanted to ask you: Is there one image that you've been able to put on screen thus far that you're most proud of? Because you have a you have a powerful sense of lasting imagery. Is there something that you really dig that you weren't sure you were going to be able to pull off, or that you think really worked incredibly well? Well, it's probably for someone else to say.
1: <laughs> really? What, what do you? Yeah.
0: I, but I want to know what you like and what you like about what you're doing.
2: Uh. You know, I mean, like, I don't know, dude, like the, the Sasha Schneider rip off shot from the lighthouse is pretty cool, but I just ripped off some simplest painter. Um, you mentioned that uh, you're
0: writing something else now. What are you, what are you, what are you writing?
2: Well, I can't say because I'm a horrible person and, and a rude guest. I'm oh, sorry. So annoying. Are you, are you, do you, do you still enjoy writing? Love writing. It's, a, it's so great because like you haven't made the movie yet. So it, it's like, like a masterpiece. It's great. <laughs> how much... How Did you have to
0: change much in this one that was not achievable? Like at what point do you realize like, actually, we can't pull this off? Does that come up with a movie this
2: big? You know, I don't know if we really did like have to do that on this. In fact, like sometimes we... Like we... Uh, there we We never finished the visual effects, but like we um like at one point, there was like uh, a lot of valkyries <laughs> Like oh. a whole, we shot like tons and tons and tons of valkyries, uh, but it sort of in the context of everything kind of became perhaps too confusing uh, <laughs> but no, I think I think you know with the witch there was some stuff that we i mean I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this. Publicly or not, uh, because it's such a cool idea that maybe I have kept it to myself because it was so disappointing when you hear it. But like you know, Anya was supposed to ride uh, like uh, Black Philip into the forest, like 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 as if on horseback on a goat back, and then and then ride him up into the sky. You know, but we could, but we, but the goat was not big enough. <laughs> Uh, like we have we have, there. There are videos somewhere of Anya like like trying to ride the goat, and it's like <laughs> it's hilarious.
0: Um, I think I might have asked you this a couple of years ago, but uh, what are your thoughts on making a movie set in modern times? Uh no, thank you. Just absolutely never. No. Why is that?
2: I don't know. I mean, too, like I think. Let's just put aside the f- why I'm not interested in making. Like, why I'm not interested in a, in a modern story. Let's just put that aside because I don't even know if I can answer that question. Mm-hmm. But like, I truly love researching. I hope that, like, you know, I think, I think, I, I think my research, it like, is purposeful. Uh, you know it's not just for me like it 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 accomplishes something and helps me create like an atmosphere with this accumulation of details that i've researched but i also love doing it and it takes a lot of time and occupies a lot of time so what the hell would i i don't know what would i be doing like with my time i don't know. know i don't know
0: i did want to ask you how it feels to be psychologized so deeply with a project this big is it driving you crazy
2: well, it's weird because the the conversations that are sort of more enjoyable, like are conversations that I wish I was like, I did Mark Maron, which was nice. But I sort of like, kind of like would rather have that just been like a conversation I had with Mark Maron and not a conversation that I had in public. Mm-hmm. And same thing with some aspects of the New Yorker piece, which I really like, but it's some of it is like more private. And I knew I mean, this is how it's going to be. It's like, it's not like it's par for the course. Like I totally get it, but it is like more personal than I, I would. Yeah. It's all, it gets more personal than I would like, but it's okay. You know,
0: you know, it's been fascinating to watch it. Just being very interested in your work from the first feature. And then seeing you go through the stations of the cross here, you know, the the, <laughs> the the New Yorker profile, the bigger budget, like you're, you're, you, do you feel like you are checking boxes in, in a certain way? Or is it, is it not as conceived as that?
2: Uh, I, uh, uh, I don't feel like I'm checking. No, I don't feel like I'm checking boxes. Should I be checking boxes? Should no. I feel like I'm checking boxes? No. I don't
0: know. No, no, but it's funny because everybody. If you have success, you are asked to participate in these things. So it's always right. interesting. Um right. you mentioned Soviet art films. I end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. See anything cool lately?
2: Um yeah. Um, what have I seen that's that's cool lately? Um huh, this is like <laughs> this is funny one, but like I watched The Road to Wellville again the other night and Like not a Soviet art film. I thought it was pretty darn good. You know, it used to be like, like it got totally panned. I remember. And, uh, and it played on comedy central all the time when I was a kid and it's good. Like, you know, I mean, Bridget Fonda is not like a hundred percent believable as like an Edwardian person, but like, it's, she's still pretty good. And like, and Everything else. I mean, it's like, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like Coen Brothers meets Fellini in this like turn of the century American environment. Like people were criticizing Anthony Hopkins' performance for being like over the top. Well, like, yeah, it was fucking over the top on purpose, guys. <laughs> like, clearly, I, I, it's a, but, but it's, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. I
0: probably haven't seen it in 25 years. That's a great recommendation though. Robert, thanks for doing this. Congrats on the movie. I thought it was uh, genuinely awesome. So thank so you so for much for doing the show. And this was fun. Well, you, did, you we, I yeah. had a great time. No, you didn't. You don't have I to did, lie I, to did. Me no, like I had a good time. I had a good time. I had a good time. Really, okay, well, I appreciate it and uh, talk soon. Okay. Thank you to Robert Eggers. Thank you to Chris Ryan. And thank you to our producer, Bobby Wagner, for his work on this episode. Stay tuned to the big picture. Next week, we are building the Nicolas Cage Hall of Fame and talking about the unbearable weight of massive talent. We'll see you then.
2: This episode is brought to you by State Farm.